This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who is trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you've come to the right place. I'm your host, John Pasden, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Greater Reader Series, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, and Sinosplice.com. I've been a resident of China since 2000, and I'm here to tell you that mosquitoes are nothing but bloody thieves. My co-host is Jared Turner, co-founder of Manor Companion, lover of dad jokes, and memer extraordinaire. He is currently in England for a special Chinese language teaching conference, but just so everyone is clear, he is wearing his glasses. Language learners have gotten used to using a certain format of model language as a key piece of study material in textbooks, the humble dialogue. Why is that? We explore this question in today's episode and reveal a few often overlooked benefits of learning Chinese from dialogues. Guest interview is with Bohan Phoenix, hip-hop artist. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner, and good morning, John. Good evening, Jared. I am John Pasden. I am in Shanghai on the other side of the world. Hey, everybody. And hey, guys, before we get into our episode today, I'd like to ask you to take a second, and if you've got a friend out there who is learning Chinese and you've been enjoying this podcast, we'd invite you to just take a second, send that out to your friend, message it to them, text it, post it, whatever. And that really helps us to reach out and reach more people and help more people who are trying to learn Chinese just like you. Please help us spread the word. All right, so Jared, uh, like many people, I started learning Chinese years ago with a textbook. And I've looked at a lot of textbooks over the years. And one of the things I've noticed about textbooks is that they almost always have dialogues. Like, you know, the first chapter is the, you know, hi, what's your name, dialogue. And it's just like chapter after chapter, dialogue after dialogue. And I remember at one point I was just starting to think, why is everything a dialogue that is so boring? Why can't they do something else that's more interesting? And yet, dialogues remain popular. You ever think about why that is, Jared? Well, um, I guess so. I, I, I got ideas on both ends, why it, they do it and why it is uninteresting at times. But uh, yeah, it is commonplace, right? Even little phrase books, right? Hey, that's kind of a you know, little dialogues. Hopefully, the other person says what you expect them to reply in return. Yeah, and you know, I've been in this industry for a while. Uh, I got my start in Chinese Pod back in the day. I've got my own company, All Set Learning, Man and Companion now as well, of course. And I've tried a few things over the years trying to help people learn Chinese. And one of my ideas was, you know, why do we need dialogues? We don't need dialogues. But the more I tried to sidestep dialogues, the more I realized they really are really useful. And there's a reason that every textbook uses dialogues. And so at Chinese Pod, of course, that was a podcast, you know, an audio uh, learning platform. And pretty much every lesson is focused on a dialogue. And I just thought it was worth highlighting the humble dialogue, the thing that we take for granted so often because it can be really useful. And if you understand why it's good, where its strengths are, it may be a little bit about where it can go wrong. I think it can help anybody's studies. Yeah, John, I think you're totally right. Let's pick this apart. And so why do textbooks always have dialogues? All right. So I want to step away from the textbook example for just a second because um, I did a ton of dialogues at Chinese Pod. And one of the reasons I love doing that so much is because we could do like totally modern, up-to-date language. We could use new slang. 
we could talk about the latest technology or the latest, you know, trends in the city, whatever. And so the dialogues could just be really modern and up to date. So the nice thing about dialogues is you can make them really authentic. It's authentic spoken language. Yeah, that is true because, I mean, at the end of the day, on the authentic language angle, I mean, right now, John, aren't we having dialogue? That would make this authentic English, right? Are you speaking authentically? I suppose so. And actually, when we listen to two people having a conversation, there's just something that's naturally more interesting about it than if it's just one person droning on. So they've got that going for them, too. That's right. I mean, that reminds me of the one time, John, you asked me to do a solo podcast. I'm like, Ugh. Yeah, and I've never asked you to let me do a solo podcast. Not interested. Thank you. <laughs> well, a second benefit of having these dialogues is I, I like to look at this as contextual learning. And uh, me being an extensive reading type guy, I'm all about context, right? Um, so, you know, dialogues, they different, definitely provide that. It's not just some random string of the random sentence that uh, or a word that could be isolated on a flashcard it's uh you know you're getting the real idea of how the language is being used in the context which is actually really important because you know you start learning these also word pairs sometimes those set phrases uh and, and you know if you come across a dialogue where it's a situation you've been in then some that also helps Oh, you know, maybe I could have used it this way, or oh, I could have said that. Um, so anyway, I, contextual learning for me, yeah, that's a really big deal. Yeah, and sometimes you want a really natural context between two native speakers, the kind of thing you'll hear every day on the street. But other times it's nice when the textbook or the audio, it manipulates the context so that we have a conversation that a learner just like you would have. And so, you know, a dialogue makes this really easy. You get the context that you need, Put it in a dialogue, boom, you got good study material. Okay, so then the next one is, you know, because it's a dialogue and it's naturally spoken, then you've got good, natural, listening comprehension material. Because you could have any textbook that's just, you know, a bunch of words, and then you could read it out loud. But, you know, a dialogue is fundamentally like this spoken medium. So it is a great source of listening comprehension. And if you get good at understanding these dialogues, then if the dialogue is, you know, natural, authentic, when you hear similar things, you're going to have an easier time understanding it. I guess that goes hand in hand with the next point, John, of being speaking practice, right? So you've got the dialogue and maybe someone could read it for you, right? But you can also speak it. So that allows you some chances to really practice what it is you're learning. And you can do like role playing. Uh, you can, hey, you take this person, you take that from, you know, this role and and hey, let's let's practice speaking here. So it's kind of like you can get that from both angles, right? Yeah, and if the dialogue is natural, then hopefully there are lines in the dialogue that you could actually use verbatim, and it will still be useful. All right, well, John, you know, we're going through these things here, but, you know, we talked about having something authentic, you know, and listening, comprehension, speaking, practice, being having, like, natural things. But what about, what about those times when you've got some sort of dialogue that feels a little contrived or not natural, or some of that even old stuff that's talking about, you know, how to go to the post office, you know, which we don't do very often these days. Yeah, so a lot of times that's because the dialogue is outdated, but it could also be because whoever was writing the dialogue was maybe trying to cram in way too much vocabulary and way too much uh, grammar, and it just ended up being this weird, not-so-natural Frankenstein, you know, thing. But if the writer of the dialogue 
kind of really focus on making it natural, then hopefully you won't have that problem. But I guess that leads into the fifth point of it allows you an opportunity to expand your vocabulary. And hopefully they're not trying to cram too much vocabulary in there, like you just pointed out. But those dialogues, they are great to introduce new words, new concepts. And not just that, uh, you know, new points of colloquialisms and grammar, uh, idioms. Did I say grammar twice, John? It's okay. I, I, I don't mind a little grammar. But, yeah, the thing about this vocabulary expansion is when they start to try to put too much in there or when they start to put in words and expressions that maybe wouldn't normally be in this conversation, but, hey, why not? Let's just load it up. That's not natural vocabulary expansion. So you want the vocabulary to be the most commonly used words for this situation, this context. And uh, if you can learn them that way, then it's going to be much more natural and hopefully less awkward. Bonus point on this is do be careful when you've got sometimes a teacher or some of these materials try to throw in that uh, their favorite chung yu or something, right? That's uh oh yeah, this is the one situation where you can use this. <laughs> uh, that has never gone over too well for me, John. Maybe I got it right then, but I'll forget it when it comes time. Yeah, there are a few useful chung yu, but there aren't nearly as many as some textbooks would have you believe. Okay, but then the next point is grammar. So um, if, again, the, the dialogue is well done and the grammar is natural, then you have a you know, a good context to naturally learn the patterns of the language. Um, hopefully the sentences aren't too complicated because people don't normally speak in too complicated of a manner. And then you can pick up the grammar patterns that, that you need to express these, uh, you know, these ideas in these practical situations. Grammar, that's right up your alley, John. Chinese Grammar Wiki. Don't forget. Seventh point here is cultural insight. So dialogues do give that opportunity to get a little bit of a window into the culture. Oftentimes they're going to be in, you know, settings where you might, oftentimes they're going to be in settings where you would encounter certain elements of these cultures. So that could be like customs or etiquettes or just everyday situations, uh, you know, could be things in the country in China. Uh, So this definitely gives that opportunity for some cross-cultural understanding. And, and this is an interesting point, John, is that uh, this does bring up questions at time for the learner. It's kind of like, well, okay, I understand all the words, and you know, maybe I understand the sentence, but I don't understand why you know this is happening, or I don't understand what is really going on in the situation. And that provides some good hooks for learning some elements about the culture. Sometimes that does take some explanation of, of a person who might be more familiar with the culture or a teacher. But they're great opportunities for learning that. Yeah, and I got to say, this is one area where some dialogues kind of make a few missteps. Because if you want to teach culture in a dialogue, it is sometimes tempting to do that dialogue where it's like, Hey, have you ever heard of A? A, what's that? Tell me about it. And the other person just starts lecturing. (laughs) And it's like... A little contrived. Yeah, it's like this little cultural, you know, introduction paragraph disguised as as a dialogue. And so that's kind of annoying, usually not the most interesting dialogue to learn from. But when they're done well, dialogues can be really great ways to learn about culture. When they're done well. Okay, and then our last point, number eight, is that dialogues can be made engaging and enjoyable because it's people talking and they can be all excited and, 
you know, and funny and angry and all those things that people do. And you can put that into the dialogue and you can still learn and it can be fun. Yes. And hopefully, right? And I think this is one of the challenges of, of you know, writing good dialogues uh, and having good materials is that hopefully it is engaging and enjoyable, but in general, it can be. And I will say this, John, is that, you know, if you do have someone you're studying with, maybe in a classroom or whatever environment it is, that, you know, dialogues, regardless, even if it's dry and it's that kind of contrived, you know, introduction to a cultural element that you had pointed out just a minute ago, you can improvise, right? Dialogues can be the basis of role play. It can be the basis of starting some sort of educational conversation. I say educational, something you can learn from, not necessarily about education, uh, but, and you can turn it into an enjoyable uh, and engaging experience. So, you know, it's that, that limit there is probably your creativity and your, your willingness to maybe sometimes push yourself a little bit, but they great, give you these great opportunities to try something that can be fun and really engage you in learning the language. Yeah, they really do have a lot of advantages. And one other advantage that I'd like to bring up is, you know, we make graded readers. These are books. So it's not just dialogues. But in a story, obviously, you're going to have dialogue. So we actually do use dialogue in our stories. Sometimes if we want to break up like uh, too many like longer paragraphs of just straight text, uh, a dialogue can be a nice way to give the reader a break because you just have this back and forth. It's easier to follow. Um, you know, your eyes are going down the page a lot faster, so it feels like you're reading faster. And um, it's just one of those little tools we have to try to keep the stories interesting because dialogue is definitely an important part of a story. That reminds me, John, over the years I've had various teachers and sometimes learners uh, send us videos that they have done uh, based on our books. And they'll take the dialogue from the book and obviously turn it into some sort of little skit or or movie scene from the book and you know, it's been a lot of fun to see those nice yeah dialogues and stories definitely lend themselves to those kinds of adaptations yeah all right so that is the end of our little love letter to dialogues they might feel boring and trite but they're actually still quite good in a lot of ways and there are lots of good ones out there and they can help you learning chinese john you say love letter can you have love dialogue you can and you can find those out there too All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion Chinese Graded Readers. These are easy to read Chinese novels that you can actually read. Today we are talking about a level one Mandarin Companion Graded Reader using only 300 basic characters. It's called The Monkey's Paw. The Monkey's Paw, only 300 basic characters. And you can have a suspenseful, slightly scary, slightly creepy story involving a monkey's paw. This is based on a short story by W.W. W. Jacobs. Uh, it's his famous story, The Monkey's Paw. And I got to say, John, my inspiration for this story came from uh, The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror that I saw when I was a kid. They had the monkey's paw. I was just going to say, when I talk about the monkey's paw, I feel like more people are familiar with the Simpsons episode than the classic short story. Yeah, well, that's our generation too, John. We're kind of getting older here. But 
They're both good. They're both good. That's right. That's right. Ours is not actually based on the Simpsons episode, but it's a good story. It's a great story. It's a great story. So there you go. You can go out and get it today. It is the Monkey's Paw, a Manor Campaign Level 1 graded reader. You can find it on iBooks, Kobo, Amazon, or wherever you get your books. And let us know what you think. Enjoy it. Okay, we do have a listener question. This listener review comes from Zoe Feldshin. Zoe, Zoe. And it is a comment that she left on YouTube. It's uh, the 10 worst pieces of advice for learning Chinese. So she says, I love how this episode takes a more comical approach to learning Chinese and addresses the common misconceptions that I've definitely heard about learning Chinese, such as needing to go to China to learn Chinese. I think my favorite piece of advice from this episode was that you don't have to write Chinese characters to learn them. This made me feel much better about my past experience. I found this slows my learning and makes me extra frustrated with the learning process. After listening to this podcast, the main question I would have is, what is more valuable to learning Chinese? Speaking and conversing socially or reading and comprehending literature? Hmm, good question, John. What do you think? What's more important? Speaking socially or reading and writing literature? I would say the more important one is the one that's more important to you. Fantastic answers from a fantastic guy. <laughs> well, thank you. And and by the way, Jared, it's not as simple as like, well, if you're outgoing, you should learn to speak to people. And if you're introverted and like to stay home and read books, then you should learn to read. Because even though I am more introverted than extroverted, I do like to talk and... Speaking Chinese is more rewarding to me than reading, even though I do like to read too. That's a really good point. You know, and I, I, I have to echo that. It's right. Follow your interests. You know, are you going to be in situations where you need to speak all the time? Speak and listen. Well, focus on that. If you are going to be uh, a researcher and you need to really like read all the stuff online and, and be able to translate that or give reports on it, then you probably should focus more on that. So, but I think at the end of the day, you're going to need to learn both to some extent, for sure. But, um, but yeah, as far as like really enhancing and focusing your language in one area, I guess that depends on how you're going to use it. Yeah, actually, um, let me amend what I said just a little bit. Don't totally neglect one. Like people who learn to speak but can't read or write at all, they usually regret it, you know, as long as they don't give up their Chinese. And then... I don't know yep. too many people yep. these days who read and write but don't speak at all, um, but you don't really want to do that either. But if you find yourself emphasizing one, practicing one a bit more than the other, that's okay. Just um, you know, try to keep them both up somewhere similar levels. Duly noted, John. All right, it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have kind of a weird rave, kind of a retro rave. So, so Jared, do you remember all those shared bikes we had in, in Shanghai? Yeah, yeah. The you scan the QR code to unlock them, and then you hop on. Yeah, Mobike. Mobike. I love that. All right, so Mobike is no more. No. And I think back in the day, we weren't sure if this whole shared bike thing was going to last. Like maybe it was just a fad that was going to disappear after a year or two. And you know, COVID, you know, ravaged Shanghai for a few years. But now that things are basically back to normal, um, shared bikes are definitely here to stay. So everywhere you go, you see the blue Hello Bikes and the yellow uh, Meituan Bikes, which used to be Mobike. And so if you have both the Alipay app and the WeChat app, you can unlock any bike 
and it is super convenient. And in fact, there are people throughout the city um, going around and redistributing the bikes because they tend to get all clumped in certain places and then you can't find them in other places. And it just is, it's working really well. Like a lot of people just don't even need bikes anymore because you can just get them everywhere. And in fact, I recently posted a video of some of the uh, interesting bike collection methods. We can stick that in the show notes if you're interested. But um, shared bikes, I know not every city in the world is big enough to make them work, but Shanghai is making it work. I think Beijing still is too. So it's pretty cool. That's great. You 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 had me going there for a second when you said Mobike is no more, but there's there's at least other ones. There are other ones. I I think it's hilarious, John. Over the years, how those things have evolved. I remember once they almost used to be just like littering the streets everywhere. Yeah, I remember when they first came out, they were too small. I couldn't even ride them. But then they made them just big enough, and you can adjust the seat, so now I can use them. So that's nice. And I saw some instances where people were taking. There's so many of them. They're like these graveyards of them, and then people. We're like taking them and chopping them up and turning them into like, you know, two different bikes and putting them into uh, making a tricycle out of it and stuff. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Yeah, you occasionally see people using them as like barricades and stuff. Um, but because they're so common, like people aren't like stealing them or anything anymore because they're just everywhere. There's no need. Well, good stuff, man. I love those things. Jared, it is your turn. Do you have a rant or a rave for us? Okay, I've got like a ravey, ravish, rave? Wait, I thought you had it's a not rant. So rant. I was thought, okay, I, 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 yeah, it was maybe going to be a rant, okay? Because uh, I got this, I come across articles all the time, and there's this one article came up in my feed, and it says, it was from like the TED Radio Hour. It says, there's a secret to learning many languages, and it has nothing to do with smarts. And it was this polyglot up there speaking, and I'm thinking, all right, here we go again. Here's the secret formula. My secret to learning 28 languages, right? And so I went through this, and I'm like, and they started talking about, uh, well, one individual that starts, you know, like, learn a language in three months. I'm kind of like, oh, here we go. But actually, I went through it, and it was pretty pretty decent. Um, and she says here that uh, she organizes some polyglot conference, this, uh, this girl. And she says that uh, all these polyglots, they seem to have one common denominator and it says that they they simply found ways to enjoy learning a language and uh and that's that's kind of her thesis if you will she goes through some other things and saying hey uh, you need to also have a discipline if you will she calls it a system but i I might say yeah it's discipline system yes something sticking to it Uh, but her real focus is on actually really enjoying the language and uh, and so yeah, I, I have to I have to support that you know I, I because at the end of the day if you're enjoying it, if you are having a good time, um, it's something it's self fueling it, it's something that kind of perpetuates itself. It's almost like you, if you stay disciplined and you stay focused on learning a language and you enjoy it, it's almost like you can't help but learning the language, even if you're not using like really great methods, you're still going to learn the language or at least to some level of proficiency. So, you know, I got to give a little bit of rave to this. This, uh, So I should specifically, yeah, the video, it's an article, TED Radio Hour. It's The Secrets of Learning a New Language by by Lydia Makova. And uh, there's, we'll put a link in the show notes there. And I guess actually there's like a TED Talk video and there's also like a TED Radio Hour thing called There's This. So we'll put... We'll put that in the show notes. It's a good little listen. Good reminder to everybody. Say, hey, if you're not enjoying this, 
find out ways to make it more enjoyable for you. And uh, if it's drudgery, uh, well, you need to make sure you find your purpose, right? Your reason. And make it enjoyable. You totally spoiled that secret, Jared. Totally spoiled. Spoiler alert. (laughs) All right. Enjoy your Chinese people. Enjoy it. This interview was first aired way back in February of 2022. It's with Bohan Phoenix, a bilingual and bicultural hip-hop artist. We hope you enjoy it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I boy. Bohan Phoenix. Uh. Hey, let me take you overseas, baby. Hey. Hey. Cause I was born overseas. Then my mama took me overseas. I made a home. My name is Bohan Phoenix. I am a Chinese American hip hop artist. And I was born in China, but I spent about the last half of my life being based out of New York. Now that I'm back, you remember me. Cause I was born overseas. And then my mama took me overseas. Now that I'm back, finally. Do it for me and my family. Okay, Bohan, this was a unique interview for us for our podcast. And I usually ask people, why did you start learning Chinese? I think that's a bit of a moot point. But, like, pull back the curtain for us. What are some of your memories and, and what was that like when you were in elementary school? I grew up in Yichang, and, you know, we had a highway running behind our building that we probably seen, like, two cars a day, you know, three cars wow. a day. And one of the fun things that me and my friends would do is wait on top of the bridge and try to throw rocks at, like, these cars that come by, you know? And I, I slept in the same bed as my grandparents for the 11 years until I came to America. You know, we didn't have indoor plumbing. We had an outhouse. And um, inside, we had, like, this pot. You literally, if you woke up in the middle of the night and you need to go to the bathroom, you just <laughs> in that pot. And they clean it in the afternoon, them in the morning, and then there's, you know little squares of farm squares and, you know, you grow your own vegetables. So I'd walk to school. It takes about like 40 minutes to walk to school, elementary school. And I always tell people about this bathroom part because the bathroom is the giant hole. It's just a giant hole. You go in, it's like an outhouse and then there's like slits and you put these like planks over the slits and then you kind of like bend over. But if you're not taking a shit, you kind of just like need to pee. You kind of just go around to the back and the back is just like this open hole where all this <laughs> is sliding into from inside the outhouse you know but it smells so bad in there like if people need to pee they just go around to the corner <laughs> and kids used to shove each other into this giant hole of <laughs> you know like it kind of speaks to like the place and the time that was you know like hmm. yeah it was pretty rural you know but it was a very simple and very pleasurable life you know like all i knew and everybody, all they knew was in order to do better, you kind of need to get good grades and you kind of need to just excel, you know. And my mom, you know, who was working in Shenzhen at the time, saw that my grades was not going to be the outstanding part of my childhood you know, life. So she figured out, okay, then the next step, you know, will be America. But yeah, you know, that was, Yichang was very much... The opposite of what I experienced in America. But if I didn't have that experience, it'd be very hard to appreciate everything that's happening now. So uh, very uh, humble beginnings. 
Yeah, it's like humble beginnings, but also just like really, really sweet memories, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you could paint a little more of the picture of kind of like your family situation. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, actually, my mom had met my dad when they were both working in the bank as cashiers. And he had um, sang at a nightclub at nighttime to like earn side money. Also, and your dad was a singer. Yeah, he was trying to, you know, he had a brother and um, his mom only had money to send one of them to school. So his brother went to medical school and he kind of just like worked on the side and like sang in like this Joe bar. It's not even mm-hmm. nightclubs, you know, it's like these little lounges. You know, you've been in China, you've seen those Joe Ba and they're covering other songs, you know, like yeah. the Canto pop songs. So that's how they got together, you know. But, you know, he was too young. He was 23 and he wasn't ready, you know. So he took off and my mom left me with my grandparents. And each home where my grandparents were, it's pretty rural. If you stay there, there's really not much opportunities. She uh, ended up working, getting a real estate license, working in Shenzhen. And, you know, Shenzhen in the late 90s, that's a hot spot. You know, that's where the new money is flowing into. So... You know, she was doing, like, pretty well. Like, she has, she bought, like, she bought, like, you know, a condo, like, and she was sending money back home to to, to each home. But, you know, I, I can't say I remember feeling much intimacy with her because I don't think I quite understood then, like, the dynamics, you know? Like, I just remember being, like, a kid and being like, oh, my mom is never here. You know, I'm always with my grandparents and my cousins and my uncles and my aunts. But my mom will be there for like Chinese New Year. And that eventually affected how my relationship was with her coming to America and why it made me lean into rap music because I didn't have that comfort at home. You know, Mm -hmm. like I had to find it somewhere else. But now in retrospect, after meeting a lot of other Asian immigrants, Chinese immigrants, I realized a lot of them, you know, went through single parent, single mom like situations just like myself, you know. Yeah, it was it was also an incredible, incredible time growing up in the same household as my grandparents and my cousins and my uncles. And all. It was just like a big family versus had I been living in Shenzhen with my mom, it would have been like very, you know, she's at work, I'm home alone type of vibe, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so are you still connected with your extended family back there in China? Oh, 100%. So basically after I left in 2003... My grandmother passed in 2004, and my aunt was the closest person in Chengdu to my grandfather. So we didn't feel comfortable for him to be by himself in Yichang, you know, at an old age. So he moved to Chengdu. And once he's in Chengdu, anytime Chinese New Year's or whatever, you know, we're just going there for the holiday. So that became home. Now, from what I understand, it was about 11 years old you moved to the States, Boston, right? Yeah. So I mean, yeah. tell me about that. I mean, even where was your English at that point? I, I do remember when I was in fourth grade, which is about 1999 or 2000, they started teaching English in China, in Yichang. Okay, so basically my mom, you know, had came in 2000 and was trying to get me to come in 2001, but then 9-11 happened. So I couldn't get my visa until 2003. And funny, I had to, like, meet my dad for, like, the second time ever to, like, have him sign off on me going. Because the embassy needed my dad's approval to be like, oh, yeah, he's going to come back. 
you mm-hmm. know, so it's not like oh, he's going to go and become a citizen, which I ended up doing. You know, <laughs> I didn't really speak English. I remember specifically getting like a Bubu Gao cassette player and then like getting some tapes. And I remember like when I met my mom, I was going to ask her, how do you do? But I don't think I did that. <laughs> and um, my mom was dating my stepfather at that time. They weren't married yet. And my stepfather is a Swedish American guy, you know, mm-hmm. like Paul Carlson, like 6'2", like big Swedish guy. And at that time, he was on the tail end of his personal limousine business. He had a couple stretch limousines. He was driving people from like Logan to New York and back and forth, you know, before... Mm-hmm the the twin towers crash that was a pretty lucrative business so they picked me up in a stretch limousine and i had never been in a personal car before you know if it wasn't for like a taxi or like you know yeah. like never been yeah. in a limo so <laughs> i come from each hung and you know i cried my entire like plane ride because i'm like leaving my who i theme as my real parents my my you know my grandparents mm-hmm. and i'm in this limousine and i'm in the back of the car like getting car sick and I'm puking in the limousine and I get home and it's like giant large pizza and that's the first time ever having cheese or pizza. I <laughs> ate the whole thing. I ate the whole thing. Like, I mean, I moved to not just Boston, I moved to Newton. Newton is, you know, a really good suburb, Newton, Massachusetts. So I went from a place where a bottle of Pijo, a beer, is cheaper than a bottle of Coca-Cola because it's imported. Now, like, my stepfather has those 12 packs from Costco, you know, laying around. I'm just like, this is awesome, you know. (laughs) But the only thing that didn't register was I missed my family, you know. And Mm -hmm. I cried, I cried, I cried. And uh, six months into me being there, my grandmother passed away. And I was like, this is horrible. So the next summer, my mom was like, look, all right, I'm going to, you know, go back to China. If you like it there, then, you know, stay there and we'll figure out a way. And so I went back, and about two weeks in, I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, nah, I miss my, I miss my own bedroom, I miss, like, <laughs> I miss all of the snacks, you know, all of that, you know, so that was pretty much the immediate reaction. Wow, culture shock, right? I, I, a lot yeah. of people who listen and follow this podcast, they sometimes have been to China, right? And so there's that culture yeah. shock, but, you know, not as often do people think about, oh, you know, a Chinese person coming to another country, right? But that sounded like it was right. a really big change for you. It was the opposite, you know, complete opposite. So, Bohan, tell me a little bit what it was like going to school. I can only imagine those challenges, all right? Because you came from China. I guess your English at this point is very little. <laughs> none, <laughs> right? yeah, none. None. Yeah. I mean, what was that like, being in school yeah. with, with all the other kids? And maybe there were some yeah. other Chinese speakers there. I don't know. What was that like? The challenges didn't really present themselves in the actual English learning process. So basically, Newton, Massachusetts had a really high population of Asian people, especially Mm. Chinese people. So they had a really good ESL program, English Second Language. And they had a Chinese translator that came to all my classes with me. Wow. Yeah. I got there at the end of fifth grade, and I had that all the way up until the beginning of seventh grade. And on top of that, my stepfather was American. So being in the household, my mom was working from, you know, 7 to 10 at this medical lab. So I was being taken around by my stepfather, taking me to school when I'm not taking the bus. He figured that, like, it would be good for me to have my own community, like, if I missed China. So he took me to do martial arts in Chinatown. I did that for, like, seven years. 
And then my mom had me watching movies and cartoons, you know, just to kind of like repeat things back. The language part came pretty fast. And there were other Chinese American kids, but I think I was probably the most Chinese out of all of them. Mm. You know, like they mm-hmm. were all pretty much assimilated. And that was my part that I, I was having trouble with because I was also going back to China every year to see my relatives. So I'm growing up, hitting puberty and understanding life in a time where I'm like starting to gravitate who I am and what I am. And most of it was towards American ideals, you know. And then when I go back to China every year, I'd be like, hmm, people don't hold the door for each other. Hmm, people don't. <laughs> All these like these Western ideologies start kicking in and I start having like this inferiority complex about like like how people are in China versus how like American people are. Of course, you know, that was before I understood the nuance of everything. But at that time, I remember thinking, hmm, like, I I like the American side of myself a little more. So that was, like, something that I was trying to figure out. But at the same time, I was too shy to actually assimilate myself. Up until I joined a gospel choir in 10th grade, I ate lunch by myself in an empty classroom, you know? I had a friend that was also Chinese-American by lunch, bring it to me. And then like my high school had this long hallway that connected all the smaller hallways. So that's where everybody hung out. And if I had a school on one end of the hallway and a class on another end, it'd be too terrifying for me to walk through all the kids and popular kids or whatever. I'd be like so self-conscious. I would leave the school on one end, walk all the way around the fields and then walk back on the other end, you know, like it wasn't anybody was bullying me. Nobody was mean to me. Like people were really nice to me. I just wasn't sure like what kind of identity I wanted to have. And all of this wasn't coherent at the time. This is all looking back in hindsight, Mm -hmm. you know, but Mm -hmm. I just remember like when I found out about rap music, I just dove straight in because came across it while watching movies to learn English, saw 8 Mile, saw how Eminem was able to use this music to gain confidence and camaraderie in a world that he's completely oscillated by and for how young i was i gravitated to the fact that his dad wasn't there and he had a stepfather and my dad wasn't there and my stepfather you know had a loose temper because he was an alcoholic for you know however long and worked in alaskan pipelines and like was a house angels member you know like so like I just gravitated towards all of that. I remember going to school with like a do-rag for a week until like they called my parents. They're like, yo, like Bowen is coming to school with hand-drawn tattoos on himself. I would write like the D12 and all that, you know, like, and this is before I fully was like conversing in like fluent English, you know? So Uh that was really my transition into confidence, yeah. So what did your mother think about this whole situation? I mean, not yeah. just about, you know, drawing sure. tattoos and stuff on yourself, yeah. but even about how, I guess, you were lacking that confidence at school and maybe and, yeah. and how that transition, how that kind of roll out and your parents interacted with that. You know, me and my mom had an interesting relationship because she wasn't there. So when I came here, she felt like she needed to give me more leniency, she wanted to be not so strict because she didn't feel like she had the right to. She would tell me, you know, obviously school, important, like all this stuff, but she never told me not to explore what I was exploring because I was so young. She probably just thought it was a phase. 
And she was working so, so much. And I was just kind of just doing my thing. And there wasn't that much resistance from either my stepfather or her. I think the resistance came more, you know, later on during college. And when she's realizing I'm about to graduate college and I'm not really looking for jobs. That's when the urgency kicked in a bit. But at that time, I think she just wanted to be a very loving mother. Thank God, you know, she didn't support it, but neither did she went against it, you know. And then when I um, joined a gospel choir in 10th grade, basically I wasn't a good singer. And my choir director, you know, this like classically trained jazz saxophonist that teaches chemistry at Harvard, like really amazing guy. And, you know, he's like, look, I heard you like to rap. But and if every time, you know, we have a school concert, you write a verse about God, about love, you know, you perform it, we'll back you with a band in the choir. Wow. And that's when I performed the first time, you know, with my choir behind me and my mom in the crowd and parents, very supportive, you know, like suburban parents, you know, yeah. clapping along. But for whatever it's worth, whether their validation was genuine or not, it gave me the confidence that I needed to walk down that hallway finally and start dating girls and, you know, and I think she saw that and, you know, she was like, all right, I'm going to let him keep doing this thing, you know. It sounds like this was your first step really into to music, right? Creating something, you know, and singing yeah. and performing, right? I mean, but that's the thing, like that was my first time performing in 10th grade, but even in like 7th grade, 8th grade, I was leaving myself voicemails to with the beats playing in the background and I'm rapping to about 15 seconds of it. And I remember taking Eminem songs and just keeping the everything, rhythm, syllable, all the same and just changing the words, you know? Like, I, I think the creative part started like even earlier than that, but that was the first time I found a way that made sense for me to actually express it, you know? Well, at what point did you decide, I really want to pursue this, I really want to create music? I mean, in high school, I, I got a caddying job and I was doing two loops a day for the entire summer every weekend to get money to buy a laptop and a microphone and a cheap interface. So I would like to think I had that thought at that time in high school. But, you know, I think it was after college and I I tried to get some jobs with my economic degree, but because I didn't do any internships and every other NYU kid did a million internships and I was just making music or whatever, like I ended up folding jeans at Lucky Brand Jeans for a couple years and I was just like coming home so tired and like not, don't really have much energy to make music. I just stopped that. And I think that was like 2015, 20, yeah. And that's when I dove, you know, 100% into making it my job. And I didn't make any money until maybe three years after that, you know, so. The plight of the starving musician is, is it's real. <laughs> Yo, but see, that's the thing. It's like, man, thank God I went through all of that. Yeah. Though. You know, it's mm -hmm. the thing. It's like, I record my first song in 2007. I, I released a 15-song tape in my high school in 2008. Me and my boy Ashen released mad songs under the stage name Green Card because neither of us had our citizenship at the <laughs> end of high school. Then I get to college and I release 42 songs my freshman year. Then another 18 songs myself. And, but none of those, no one gave a f about. And no, no one cared about my music for so long. But I started so young at such a pure like angle and so blessed to have done that that I developed the patience that a lot of artists today starting out don't have. 
And this patience and this understanding of this journey and understanding of the people that I've met and the places that I've been and the stuff that I've realized about myself has been the biggest rewarding thing. So if Grammy never comes, if whatever never comes, I am so satisfied. You know, like Mm -hmm. the plight of a starving artist and all of that, if you can come out the other side, man, you got a bag full of treasures what the journey is teaching you and that's kind of what i'm hearing from you yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent well something i i'm kind of interested to know a little bit about bohan is a bit of this pull of two different cultures you talked about you know hey leaving china coming to america going back and then still not being sure where you are and i sense that even your music has helped kind of bring some of that together so maybe you could yeah. talk a little bit about some of those challenges that you've had in kind of bridging or bringing these two cultures together. I think pretty much after I got to college, the idea of, you know, I'm just American is pretty much settled. That I have family back home in China that I go and visit every year. And it's pretty much is where I left it. And there were more important things about, like, getting with girls <laughs> and like making music you know like that's the mind of a 21 22 year old right like but it was through like you know everything is imitation like you know walking speaking you fought you copy and for me i was copying my favorite rappers the longest time just trying to impress people with how well i can rap what kind of metaphors i can come up with but it just didn't resonate with anybody. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. all right, here's somebody that's just trying to rap like Eminem or rap like, you know, Lil Wayne, right? Like, then I realized, okay, why do I like these artists? I'm like, okay, because the stories, that's what's gravitating me to them. So I started telling my own stories. I started adding elements of my culture, you know, Chinese and all that. And that's when it's starting to click with listeners. You know, I've I've been going to open mics since the first week I was in New York. That's when I started to embrace more of the, not that I rejected the Chinese side of me. It just was on the back burner. But at that point, I realized that understanding who I am and embracing where I'm from will help me do what I need to do in America and help me grow as a person in a more meaningful way. And after I started putting that kind of energy and that kind of music out there, the bilingual music, you know, me and my roommate, Jackery, at that time, uh, 2015, we put out a four-song kind of funky hip-hop EP with me switching back and forth. And then this producer, Howie Lee, in Beijing, found my music and was like, yo, you should come out to China and perform. And so that started chain of reaction of me not just going back to China to see my family, but now I'm also going back to perform. And that's when I started diving deep. You know, I had this concept to form for here, to form for home, you know, like, because when I go back to China, I look Chinese, but just by my tattoos, the way I dress, the minute I open my mouth, you can tell I, I spend time overseas, you know, and but I'm in America, like, no matter how well assimilated I am, of course, you know, what I'm saying like the idea of the perpetual foreigner, you know, for Asians. So that kind of resulted in both the cheerful songs like Jala and also the more introspective songs like Three Days in Chengdu and Product. And that's how I kind of been like figuring out what it all means and concluding it instead of using it as like a point of stress, I kind of use it as a blessing. I mean, damn, like, you know, like I'm sure you look at the fact that you were able to spend that significant amount of time 
in China as an advantage to who you are as a person. Yeah, you know what I'm definitely. saying? So, yeah, so that's kind of how I came to terms with it. And since then, it's just been opened my eyes to, you know, different type of possibilities, both in the creative world and also in just how we can get along as different tribes of people, obviously, but also as the same tribe. And that's kind of like the goal of this music, you know, is to break down this misunderstanding. How do you approach some of your songwriting? I'll preface this a little bit like I've listened to a bunch of your music and right away, man, when I heard like a, a rap song, you're rapping in English and then you switch to Chinese. I'm like, whoa, that was cool. Yeah, that was awesome. But how do you approach that songwriting process and mixing in you know, the two different languages? When I first started doing it, it was like entire songs in English, but like I'll have maybe like two lines of Chinese in the second verse. But then, like, those two lines of Chinese would be where people are coming up. It's like, yo, that was dope. What'd you do there? You know, like, <laughs> so it became like, you know, a uh, half of a verse. Then it became like a whole verse, you know, English and verse and English. Chinese. You know, my writing process became really fun where I just kind of got to choose how I want to be flamboyant with it, you know. And at that time, you know, I have been submitting my music to blogs forever. And no one gave a f until they can write you as bilingual rapper you know i remember mm. like Bandcamp put me on their cover on their page like oriental trap with like bone and phoenix and i leaned heavy into it because again like the attention felt good you know this is before the whole like ada rising before the whole like asian music empowerment was happening so it was interesting for people to see because chinese is all one syllable every yeah. character is one syllable so sometimes rhythmically you can play with that in different ways. But other times, English, you can drag a word out more mm. than you can drag a Chinese word out. So it became more fun to play with just like musically and sonically. There were points where I was, you know, switching in between the line. But it got to a point where it got me a lot of gigs and recognition and all that. But it became a crutch. And I wasn't able to convey an idea through and through unless you spoke English mm -hmm. and Chinese. You mm -hmm. weren't really, I realized I was exoticizing myself for views, you know, and strayed from the storytelling that I really wanted to do. So I kind of dialed that back eventually. And now I kind of just think about it as like, when is it appropriate for me to say it in what language, you know, instead of just being like, I rap in English and Chinese, like, you know, like, and try to, like, make every song a selling point, you know. Yeah, and, make it yeah. less of a gimmick, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. What kind of role do you hope to play in being able to kind of bridge these two cultures? I say two cultures, I mean, we could even just say general West, right? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of sentiment these days. They're posing between two different cultures and two countries, really. So what kind of role do you hope to play? So a quick story. So my aunt in Chengdu has never been to America. And, you know, in China, the news you get about America is pretty narrow visioned. You know, like you probably hear about Heianchu, you know, the black people area, which is the poor inner cities. You know, mm -hmm. they see news about all of that. So I remember when I first told my family, oh, yeah, I live in New York. I live in Brooklyn. And she looked it up and said, oh, that's Heianchu. That's dangerous. And all like mm -hmm. black people are dangerous. Like, you know, you better be careful, you know. And no matter how I would explain it to her, there wouldn't be any context, you know, because in her mind, the news knows better than Bohan, 
you know, who doesn't even have a job <laughs> after college, you know, like covered in tattoos, making music. And this is before rap became a mainstream thing in China, obviously, you know. So when I brought four of my friends, uh, musician friends from New York to tour China with me, two of them are black and Ralph is 6'3", 280 pounds, giant afro, he's my <laughs> tattoo artist, you know, like, yeah, we all crashed in the living room of my aunt's house. And she wakes up early to walk the dog and she's walking past Ralph and his like shorts and t-shirt passed out, you know. And at the end of the week, she was in love with Ralph and she calls him Raph, you know, and Zaka. <laughs> and word for word afterwards, she's like, wow, black people are so nice, you know. Mm -hmm. So all this misunderstanding, man, it's like, man, I had the misunderstanding growing up in America about China. You know, like I thought like, oh, Chinese people are just more rude, Chinese people just blah, blah. Then I realized, okay, there's four times more the people. If there's four times the people, there's that many more bad players. And on top of that, the whole emphasis on like being nice, like smile at people, holding a door on the Western side, a lot of that is just a way to hide your own uncomfortable feeling. You know, like a lot of it's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And then walk away, it's like, oh, God, like, what is she wearing? You know, like, <laughs> stuff like that. Just way more petty personal insecurities that lead into all these niceties. I remember being in China once, like, you know, hanging out with higher brothers, and I go to their friend's house, and I'm in there, like, hey, what's up? I'm born. Hey, hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? And they're like, oh, hey, yeah, yeah. They don't do that whole <laughs> Like, they only do that if they deem you as, like, stranger you know they see you as friendly they don't do all that it's it's a real vibe you know so all this misunderstanding that people have until you get to a place until you got to experience the people there like and the role that i hope to play is just communicate as eloquently and as clearly like the compassion that i have to respect myself and respect others and respect what we all do like you know, like take the criticisms when they come, you know, because I do get criticisms about being Asian and rapping and not from the black audience, from Chinese people and white people. Oh, really? You know, like, yeah, like I remember one time going to perform because they invited me to Oberlin uh, College in Ohio to perform at for their like Chinese student association panel, you know, and I remember we they're like, hey, can we have, you know, a culture discussion panel? before the show, I was like, yeah, sure. And I show up, you know, and it's just all Chinese Americans, not a black person, not a white person. I'm just like, okay, you know, and we're talking and they're like, so how do you deal with yourself as like a Chinese rapper? I'm like, what do you even mean by that? They're like, well, how do you, you know, navigate this world, you know, like, cause hip hop is for, you know, black people, you know? I was like, listen, my name is Bonhan. Your name is Michelle, you know, like, and like, <laughs> we just came from a restaurant that served Japanese sushi and Korean food at the same time. I challenged so much of what their ideal is, what it's like to be Asian American, you know, that they both were fascinated enough to invite me and pay me to perform, but also wanted to be like, so how do you feel about doing this? You know, like for me, everything is intentions. It's like saying, like, if black people start doing Shaolin martial arts, it's like, why are you doing that? It's like, oh, because I appreciate and I love and I want to be a part and I want to learn. So, like, it was a very eye-opening experience because all the times that I performed at Apollo Theater lining up 
for hours waiting to get in on the amateur night and then I'm I'm in line with only black and Latino performers. You know, and they're like, What are you doing? I'm like, I'm here to rap. You know, they all are skeptical. And I, until I go on stage and my attitude is right and I come correct, they see that like, oh, oh, he just really likes this. <laughs> and then if you're just a good person on top of try to do the best you can at what you do, it's just easier to navigate all this criticism because, you know, you have a better context of what you're doing. Wow, that's cool. You know, the thing about this entertainment, right? At the end of the day, it's the audience likes it or not. Right. I can see that. It's a little bit less of, hey, what is your race or culture or whatever? It's more of like, yeah. do they like what you're doing? I mean, sometimes people don't know what they like until you do it too, you know? And I have to be honest, like, I never made music to try to get people to like me. You know, I've always made music that I thought would be super dope and interesting. But I definitely there were points where I just stuck with one thing because I realized people liked it. And those were the times that I was the most stagnant creatively, I would say. So something I also just kind of interested about, Bohan, is bridging kind of two cultures, two worlds, but also your family, and especially your mom. And I know you mention your mom in a lot of your music and a lot of your songs. And so what kind of role does she play in your life today? And what kind of influence has she played in writing your music? I think once I realized the only way I could stand out is just by being me because no one has my story except me. That's when I leaned into inspirations from my life. And more often than not, a lot of things come from my personal relationships. And a lot of that comes from the complexity of me and my mom's relationship because up until college, I never told her I loved her. I never kissed her on the face. It was a very cold, but also just distant, you know, kind of vibe. You know, like we did everything together, you know, New Year's, Thanksgiving, all that. But it was like, yeah, this is my mom and I'm her son. But there were times when we fight and I'm like, you're not my mom. You were never there. It wasn't until I, it was an acid trip one time, and one of my best friends at the time, I was, we were talking about it, tripping out on acid, and I was like, yeah, I just, you know, I don't know, like, he's like, bro, like, I don't know if I could be friends with somebody that don't love their mom, and I started to try to, like, explain why, and he was like, bro, like, think about how hard it was for her to be away from you than it is for you to be there with your grandparents and, like, thinking about she wasn't there, and then now, after she's came to America not speaking a word of English, transitioning from real estate into biochemistry and learning English and biology on her own at the same time. And he broke it down to me. And with the inhibitions aside, I was like, wow. And since then, me and my mom have became best friends. We talk all the time, joke around all the time. I mean, one of the reasons why I feel so level-headed, I just feel confident because I have such strong rocks in my world, like my friendships and my mom and all that. So, I got to know, how does your family, especially your Chinese family, how do they view your music now? They don't really uh, understand much of what it is, but they know I'm making money from it. And my cousin, who's younger, uh, late 30s, she knows like the Vava, she knows like the stuff. So she knows that like, oh, Bohan puts music with them, so he must be doing okay, you know. I don't know. To them, they still just think it's something not as stable, but... A phase, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. They don't think it's a phase anymore, not after all these tattoos, yeah. They're over that. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, do over that. Well, Bohan, where can people find out more about you, and and where can they find your music? Pretty much all my handles is Bohan Phoenix or Bohan Phoenix, and then I'm on all the streaming platforms. So whatever is easiest. And for people that want to buy the files, I'm on Bandcamp as well. And I have my first full-length album coming out this year. It's finished, and yeah, excited for that. And will you be doing any touring in the future? I mean, COVID restrictions, if it allows, we'll definitely be doing some shows for sure. Well, that's great. Well, I, hopefully mm-hmm. you'll be coming to a city near whoever's listening. Yeah, so. <laughs> trying to go everywhere. But before we wrap this up, I do want to share uh, sometimes when I am teaching basic stuff to my like English-speaking friends, for example, like I remember being in China with my bandmates and teaching them how to say shishit. You know, uh-huh. they would always be like, she, she, and I'd be like, <laughs> say like, I was always be like, say shit twice, but without the T and they're like, shit, shit. And they nails it. They nail it every time. <laughs> and that was one of the ways I was learning English actually was writing the Chinese sonics next to the words to kind of remember it like that. And, um, just as a side job for like a few months. I was teaching Chinese on this website called Varsity Tutor. Mm-hmm. It was pretty elementary type of teaching, but I remember teaching this Japanese lady. She had a chauffeur driving her in from Greenwich Village to Union Square. One time I just remember, because, you know, growing up in China, all you get is anti-Japanese sentiments, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I had always wondered if Japanese people felt the same way. And I remember asking her, I said, hey, like, what is making you learn Chinese? And she said... You know, my father's Japanese. He's a very proud Japanese. But he said, in order for us to be the best Japanese that we can be, we need to understand that all of our shit came from China and we need to understand Chinese. And I was like, wow, that's very, uh, very interesting. That's a pretty neat story, especially yeah. from Japan. But a lot of right. Japanese do speak Chinese. That That's also right. another interesting thing, right. too. All right, Bohan, so... We'll be looking for some tour dates in the future. But in the meantime, we'll check out your music there. And I know we can also do some things to support you on your website. And I really hope you get out there making more music. And I'm really happy to hear all these wonderful songs that you've made already. It's wonderful songs. But, you know, it's like stuff I think is really cool. Really appreciate that. Well, thanks for being with us today. All right, Jay. Thank you. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, MC, host, presenter, waiter, maitre d', concierge, butler, and that one bloke named Ren. Please subscribe to our podcast, share it with a friend, and if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. You can also reach out to us at mandarincompanion.com or Mandarin Companion on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, etc. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is usually produced by Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo. Interview editor is Dominic Edley. I'd like to thank our special guest, Bohan Phoenix, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the dad joker, the memer, Jared Turner. I'm John Pazden. Catch you next time.